What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. In December of 2010, the English town of Bristol was, like the rest of the U.K., preparing itself for Christmas. Unfortunately, though, for one of its citizens, a 25-year-old landscape architect named Joanna Yates, the holidays would never come on this particular year. And that was because, after her disappearance on December 17th, and the highly publicized police inquiry that followed, her body would ultimately be found on Christmas Day in nearby North Somerset. Of course, this was a devastating moment for her family, particularly since it had come to them at such an inopportune time. But once they had a chance to let the news sink in, they immediately started the search for justice. If for no other reason, then so the person responsible for her death would be held accountable. Unfortunately, though, while the investigation which followed on from this would quickly lead to an arrest, the man the authorities initially nailed for the crime would prove to be innocent. And with his name having been dragged through the mud as a result, it would lead to a number of lawsuits being filed against the media, something which only served to muddy the waters and take the focus away from the crime itself. Thankfully, the police would catch the actual perpetrator soon after this, and to the surprise of everyone, following all that searching, it turned out to be the man living right next door. This is Monsters. The Sad Death of Joanna Yates is a tale which touches upon many different topics such as loneliness, mental health issues, the responsibilities of the media, and how everything can be amplified during the holiday season. More so than any of this, though, is a story of a young woman whose life was taken too soon, and this should never be forgotten. Joanna Yates was a 25-year-old landscape architect living in Bristol at the time of her death. And perhaps unsurprisingly, starting a career in something like this at such a relatively young age meant she had done very well in school during the years prior. While studying at both Embley Park Boarding School and then Peter Simons College, Joanna would prove to be something of a star pupil. In fact, so good would she turn out to be that after leaving sixth form, she'd easily gain a place at Riddle College where she achieved a degree in landscape architecture. But even that wasn't the end of her studies, because following this, she moved on to the University of Gloucestershire, where she earned a postgraduate diploma in her chosen field as well. This is mentioned to make it clear that she was an intelligent young woman, likely not to put herself in harm's way unnecessarily. She was very aware of herself and how she fit into the world, and had big plans for where her future was going to take her. That said, these plans didn't include succeeding alone because in December of 2008, she met Greg Reardon, a fellow architect working in nearby Winchester. They quickly found they had a lot in common and the two began dating, with them deciding to move in together a year later. 
Sadly, though, their choice of home would ultimately prove to be a fatal one for Joanne, as while they didn't realize it at the time, their new abode would place them right next door to a very dangerous man, with this being fellow architecture graduate Vincent Tabak. Of course, given the similarities in both their careers and interests, you'd have thought Joanne and her partner Greg would have gotten along well with Vincent. This, however, wouldn't account for the fact that Dutch-born Tabak rarely ever socialized with anyone. In fact, he was something of a loner, a man who, despite being in his mid-40s by then, still struggled to talk to other people on account of his introverted nature. And that's not to say that being an introvert is necessarily a marker that someone is a murderer. Far from it. But what it does tell us is that, despite living mere feet away from the man who would ultimately end her life, Joanne Yates would never actually meet him before the crime took place. But if Vincent was such a loner, what had caused him to leave his home country and travel all the way across the channel to UK then? To answer that, we have to rewind a little bit and take a look at his youth. Born in Udin, the Netherlands, on February 10, 1978, Vincent was the youngest of five siblings, with his status of runt of the litter causing him to develop a very quiet and internal nature as he grew up. During his time at school, he would realize he had a passion for engineering, and as a result, he worked to earn himself a spot at the Eindhoven University of Technology in 1998, with him studying there for seven years before graduating with a master's degree in architecture, building, and planning in 2003. After that, like his future victim, he'd also continue on with his studies as he began working on a PhD, one which focused on how space is used in public buildings and office spaces. Once his PhD paper was published in 2007, he'd catch the attention of Burrow Haphold, an engineering consultancy firm in Bath, England, a small town situated about a 40-minute drive from Bristol. This is what would ultimately see him move over to the UK at this point as he started up a new life for himself as a people flow analyst. As you can see, there were, at least on the surface, a lot of similarities between Vincent Tabak and Joanna Yates. That said, there were still a lot of differences too, one of the most prominent of which was how they dealt with potentially romantic partners. In the case of Joanna, she was by all accounts a very confident and attractive woman, and as a result, she had no problem attracting men. Of course, she was also a very driven person, someone who knew exactly what they wanted, and this meant that, despite the fact that she may have had a number of suitors over the years, once she met Greg Reardon, she immediately understood that he was the one she wanted to devote herself to. In the case of her killer, however, his introverted and shy nature would see him have a far more difficult time when it came to dating. In lieu of being able to go about things in a more traditional manner, he'd become an early adopter of the online dating world, with him quickly finding out that this method made it a lot easier for him to navigate things. In fact, after only a few months of using the Guardian newspaper's online dating site, Soulmates, he met someone special. And like Joanna Yates, he'd also not want to waste any time, as by June of 2009, he and his girlfriend moved in together when they rented a flat next door to Joanna. Any domestic bliss each of the couples were enjoying would soon be destroyed because on December 19, 2010, Greg Reardon would return home at around 8pm after having spent the weekend visiting Sheffield. While he had expected his partner to be there when he arrived, he was instead met with an empty flat, leading him to start wondering about where she had gone. Not that he had any real reason to worry yet, of course. 
While they were a couple, both Greg and Joanna still had their own independent lives. Given that it was so close to Christmas, he was surprised to find her not at home and so, out of curiosity, he tried calling and texting her to see where she was. When he did that, Greg could hear a clear buzzing coming from the hallway, and when he inspected further, he found his girlfriend's phone in her coat pocket, a coat which was still inside the flat. But that wasn't all he found in her pocket, because alongside her phone, Joanna's keys and purse were there as well. And as if that wasn't concerning enough, it quickly became evident that their cat had not been fed in days and was slowly starving. Needless to say then, this set alarm bells ringing for Greg, and so, after tending to his pet, he contacted the police to let them know something was wrong. And this is where the situation exploded into the public consciousness because, after Joanne was formally reported missing, an investigation would begin into what happened to her. The family and friends of the missing woman wouldn't rely entirely on the police to find her at this point. No, they'd also made the decision to go public with the story in the hopes that the added publicity would lead to someone coming forward with any information they had. It was here that they set up a website asking anyone who knew anything to contact them, all while simultaneously they were holding a police press conference on the matter on December 21st. Of course, reports of a young girl going missing were always going to grab the attention of the public and make them want to help out in any way they could, but what made this one an even bigger deal was the time of year that it was happening. After all, Christmas was meant to be a time where families and friends came together to share in the spirit of giving with one another. It was that one period of the year where, no matter how bad things might have been before or after, there was a sense of optimism and unity amongst the public. So to think that a family was being torn apart at Christmas, and that a young girl might have met her untimely end, well, this was an especially difficult pill to swallow, and that's because if the worst had happened, this wouldn't just affect the current holiday season for her loved ones, it would affect each one going forward from there. But while public sentiment to see something done would be strong at this point, things still weren't moving fast enough for the now desperate father of Joanna, David Yates. As he saw it, every hour that passed without his daughter being found was crucial and meant the likelihood she wouldn't be discovered at all only increased tenfold. So with that in mind, he appeared at another press conference two days later, with this one being broadcast nationwide on both Sky News and BBC News so that the whole country could learn about the story. But while this appeal would bring a whole host of information the authorities could use to try and locate the missing woman, it wasn't like they had nothing to work on prior to this, because after police had done a thorough search of her flat for any potential clues, they noticed some pretty suspicious happenings. The first sign that something was wrong was the fact that Joanna had left her coat at home with her purse, keys, and phone. Surely if she was going out somewhere, she would have taken all of these items with her. If she hadn't gone out of her own free will then, the only other possibility was that someone had taken her. But given that there was no sign of forced entry into the flat, it all pointed to the idea that if someone had kidnapped Joanna as her family now believed, then it must have been someone she invited in. And this suggested she knew the person in question. So hoping to find more potential clues from local CCTV footage, and perhaps even the identity of her abductor, the police began scouring every nearby location which had access to cameras and recording equipment. This would lead them to a supermarket not far from Joanna's home where, upon checking their surveillance footage, the authorities were able to confirm that the missing woman had been seen at around 8.10pm on December 17th, 
and that matched up with what her friends had already told them, as they'd confirmed she was drinking with them at the Bristol Ram pub nearby not long before. They had explained that Joanna left there at around 8pm, with her planning to go straight home and spend the weekend baking and doing Christmas shopping in preparation for her boyfriend coming back. What she wasn't looking forward to, however, was being there alone for the next couple of days, as this would mark the first time she had done so for this length of time since moving into that flat. Now that police were beginning to build a timeline of events, they started trying to figure out what had happened between the time she left the supermarket and the time she got back home. And luckily for them, there were a couple more clues they had to use, because at around 8.30pm, Joanna had called her best friend Rebecca Scott to arrange to meet with her on Christmas Eve. Then, ten minutes after that, CCTV footage from both a petrol station and a liquor store showed her buying a frozen pizza and two small bottles of cider to take home with her. After that, though, the trail went cold, so police were left relying on phone calls from the public to give them any more idea as to where the missing person was. Unfortunately, before any further information could come in, the worst-case scenario would occur, as on Christmas Day, the body of a fully clothed woman would be found lying in the snow by a couple walking their dogs along Longwood Lane in nearby Fair Lane, approximately three miles from where Joanna lived. And it didn't take long before this body was identified as being that of the missing girl, with her family confirming this when they got a chance to see her two days later. While they may have wanted to lay her to rest as soon as possible at this point so that the process of healing could begin, any funeral plans would have to be delayed because by then it was clear a murder had taken place, and this meant that a full autopsy had to occur first. That eventually revealed that the deceased had been strangled and that it had likely occurred several days before she was discovered. On top of that, the examination would also confirm there was no evidence of Joanna being sexually assaulted prior to her death. There was also no food in her stomach either, suggesting she hadn't eaten the pizza she'd purchased earlier that evening. With the autopsy complete, funeral arrangements were finally made. The local community held a memorial service for Joanna on January 2nd, about a month before she was laid to rest on February 11th. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As for police, their next priority became finding out who had done this. Who had taken this young woman with all the potential in the world and snuffed out her flame so soon? Was it a case of someone who knew her looking for revenge? Was it a situation where a stranger had tried to make a pass at her on the street and it had gone horribly wrong? Or was it something else entirely? These were the questions running through the authorities' minds at this point. Luckily for them, however, they would have a lot of help from the public because after the news of Joanna Yates' death hit the media, thousands of British citizens would call into their local police stations with information they felt they may have about what had happened. Of course, this created the problem of having to sift through all the potential leads. So in order to combat this issue, Operation Braid would be formed. 
a task force made up of 80 detectives and civilian staff who would go through each and every call to assess if there was anything to them. And in the end, this would lead to potential links being made to prior unsolved murder cases, such as that of Gladys Carruthers, a 20-year-old woman who was strangled to death in 1974, and Claudia Lawrence, a 35-year-old woman who went missing in 2009. But while the police had initially been intrigued by the similarities in these crimes, they were ultimately unable to provide any clear links between the three, and so, as time went on, any excitement they had about maybe being onto something would die away. And if that wasn't disheartening enough, the over 100 hours of surveillance footage which was combed through, and 290 tons of garbage which was seized from the area around Joanna's home would also yield no results. One thing the police could be confident of, though, was that her boyfriend, Greg Reardon, had not been the one who committed the crime. With this conclusion being reached after his phone and laptop were searched as part of standard procedure. Still, though, even if he wasn't a suspect, this didn't bring the family any closer to finding out who the assailant was. And that was why Crime Stoppers UK, a community group set up to fight crime, would offer a £10,000 reward for anyone who came forward with information. With local tabloid newspaper The Sun following suit and offering an additional £50,000. On top of that, the appeal for witnesses to come forward would be stepped up with a national Facebook advertising campaign, as well as the release of CCTV footage of the deceased captured not long before her disappearance. After only one day of being out there, not only would the footage be viewed 120,000 times on YouTube, but the Facebook page received 250,000 hits, something which led to the first real clue the police could sink their teeth into. After seeing the campaign for potential witnesses to come forward, a young woman who had been attending a party across the street from Joanna's flat on the night of her disappearance revealed she had heard two loud screams coming from that direction shortly after 9pm. At this point, with it seeming more and more likely that the murder had taken place while she was at home, investigators returned there and removed the front door so that it could be tested for clothing fibers and DNA evidence. Meanwhile, as this was happening, senior officers working on the investigation would contact the National Policing Improvement Agency, an organization designed to provide expert advice on particularly difficult cases. And this led to a clinical forensic physiologist who had previously worked on a number of other high-profile murder cases getting involved in helping to narrow down the list of potential suspects. How would he do this? Well, first of all, he would use DNA which had been found on the body of Joanna and attempt to match this to any known sex offenders in the area. On top of that, he also assisted detectives in tracking the movements of several hundred registered sex offenders living within the jurisdiction so as to try to determine where they were on the night of the disappearance. When the first arrest was ultimately made only a couple of days after this on December 30th, it wouldn't be anyone who had previous sex offense crimes against their name. Instead, it was the landlord of Joanna Yates, Christopher Jeffries. He became a suspect because he was living in the same building and was one of the few people known to be there on the night of the disappearance. It seemed there was a likelihood he knew something about what had occurred. On top of that, a tipster who had lived in the same building had reported him as behaving suspiciously around the same time. After reading him his rights, forensic investigators would begin the process of searching his flat. And while they were doing this, 
the accused would undergo a grueling two-day-long questioning session where he was grilled as to what involvement he had in the murder. Of course, none of this went anywhere, so 48 hours later, Christopher would be released on bail, with him no longer being considered a suspect at this point. The only problem was that by then, with the case now being so high profile, several media sources had gotten wind of the fact that he'd been arrested and were already plastering his name and face all over the news. Needless to say, this did quite a lot of damage to his reputation as, even if he was apparently innocent of the crime in question, he would forever be associated with it and would always have a question mark over his head in the minds of some. That was what eventually led him to file a lawsuit against those who printed his information before he'd ever been convicted of a crime. But we'll get into this more in detail a little later. For the time being, we'll focus on the ongoing search for Joanna Yates' killer because, with another suspect now being ruled out, things were getting more desperate than ever. Luckily, a breakthrough would soon come as, on January 20th, 32-year-old Vincent Tabak would be arrested in connection with the murder. Of course, given how poorly things had gone with Christopher Jeffries and the resulting aftermath of that, the cops were hesitant to make his information public at the time. But why was he even arrested? Well, like Christopher, Vincent had lived in the same building as the deceased and was known to have been there on the night of the disappearance. And, according to another anonymous tipster who had contacted police following another national television appeal made by the family of Joanna Yates, there was reason to believe that he not only had information about the crime, but that he had committed it himself. What exactly was said during the phone call that led investigators to believe that Vincent was the murderer is unclear, but it was enough for them to bring Vincent in at this point despite the fact that he had previously been ruled out as a suspect at an earlier time in the investigation. In fact, the police had so little interest in him early on that they had actually taken tips from him, with those tips being part of why Christopher Jeffries became a suspect. That's right, the tipster who had tried to cast suspicion on Christopher less than a month earlier had been none other than the killer himself. And the reasons he did this should be clear for anyone to see. He wanted to get police off his own scent. That was why, while back at home in Amsterdam visiting his family for the holidays, he'd contacted Avon and Somerset police and revealed what he claimed to know. But in many ways, this would end up being his undoing as, after Detective Constable Karen Thomas was sent over to the Netherlands to get a face-to-face -face statement from him, his interest in the case would cause her to grow wary, planting the seeds for what later grew into full-blown suspicion. With this new tip coming in then, there would be a renewed interest in Vincent being a suspect as, over the next few days, the authorities began looking deeper into his comings and goings. They discovered that despite appearing to be happy with his partner as far as the outside world was concerned, the Dutch-born architect had been in regular contact with several escort agencies while traveling around the UK and the US on business, suggesting he had sexual desires that were not being met at home. And while there was no evidence to suggest Joanna Yates had been raped prior to her death, the fact that she was a young woman still left the possibility open that there was a sexual motive in her killing. With this in mind, police would call him in for questioning once he returned to the UK on January 20th. They still didn't have the smoking gun they needed to formally charge him of the murder, though. Luckily, this would fall into their lap soon after when, once Vincent's computer was searched by investigators, a number of violent pornographic images would be discovered, 
with many of the women in those images closely resembling Joanna Yates. In fact, in one image, a woman was shown wearing a pink top which had been pulled up so as to expose her bra and breasts while she was being held by the neck and choked. And as it turned out, this arrangement would be strikingly similar to the position Joanna's body was in when it was discovered, as well as the clothing she was wearing. On top of that, DNA tests carried out on samples from Joanna's front door and from her body would match that of the man in custody. And while it couldn't be confirmed if his DNA came from saliva, semen, or touch, the forensic investigators were able to confidently say that the probability of the DNA belonging to someone other than Vincent Tabak was less than one in a billion. It seemed like, after over a month of searching, police might finally have found their man. And as a consequence of this, a planned reconstruction which was supposed to air nationwide on Crime Watch just six days later would be cancelled. With all of the evidence in place, the murdered woman's next-door neighbor would be formally charged with her death on January 22, 2011. Immediately after that, he was taken to Bristol Magistrates Court, where they declared he should be placed on remand in prison. Due to the high-profile nature of his crime, there were fears that the longer he was held in Bristol prison, the higher likelihood there was he would be the victim of an attack from a fellow convict. And if that wasn't enough, there was also a concern that, given the fact he understood there was likely no way out for him at this point, he represented a major suicide risk. In order to ensure he was kept safe before his trial could begin, Vincent was moved to Long Larton Prison and placed on 24-hour suicide watch throughout his stay. But while he may have given up hope, his family back home in the Netherlands hadn't, as being unable to reconcile the man they knew with the crime he'd been accused of committing, they continued to believe he was innocent. In fact, they even started raising funds for his upcoming court defense, all under the belief that if they could get a good enough lawyer, it would be proven that he had nothing to do with the murder. Maybe it was that that gave Vincent renewed hope at that point as, despite it looking like for a while he might be on the verge of confessing, after his family began working on his behalf, he would double down on his stance that he was innocent. Of course, this meant that the DNA evidence of his found on Joanna's body had to be planted then, something he would continue to protest as he accused the authorities of trying to fabricate things so as to make him look guilty. Why would they want to do this? Well, perhaps they were struggling to come up with an answer, so, feeling the public breathing down their neck, they decided it was best to pin the murder on somebody random rather than accept their failure to do their jobs. At least, that's what Vincent had hoped people would believe. Unfortunately for him, though, nobody was buying it, and he was forced to realize that there was nothing he could do to turn the tides in his favor. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 8th, while speaking to a prison chaplain named Peter Brotherton, he confessed to the murder of Joanna and declared that he planned to plead guilty once his trial came. Of course, this confession couldn't be counted legally yet because, with it having taken place during a privileged time between the killer and a religious advisor, it was considered inadmissible in court. 
The fact that Vincent appeared to be ready to pay the price for his crime was promising to both the authorities and the family of the deceased. And when they eventually got a chance to address the court via video link from prison during a May 8th pretrial hearing, he would stick to his word, at least partially, by admitting to the manslaughter of Joanna Yates. It appeared there were still some things Vincent Tabak wasn't willing to confess to quite yet. Despite telling the court he had indeed killed his victim, he would claim that it happened accidentally. The way he described it, the whole thing had started when he met Joanna on the street as she was walking back home one night. From there, according to him, she had made flirtatious comments towards him, something that the defense hoped would sway the jury in his favor on account of the fact that she had indeed been drinking that night and had spoken to a friend previously about feeling lonely without her partner there that weekend. In this version of the story, after flirting with Vincent, Joanna had invited him to come back to her flat and have a drink with her. Following that, the two returned to her flat and after sharing the two bottles of cider she'd just purchased, he attempted to kiss her. At this point, however, Joanna had apparently changed her mind about the directions things were moving and had screamed for her would-be suitor to get away from her. As Vincent put it, it was here that, in an attempt to quiet her down, he put his hands over her mouth and neck in hopes this would calm the situation. Because, as we all know, if anything calms a woman down, it's definitely putting your hand over her mouth. Rather than let go after a few minutes had passed, he kept his hand there for 20 seconds or so. And while he claimed Joanna didn't struggle to free herself, by the time he finally let her go, he realized she had suffocated. From there, he dragged the body to his car, then drove up to nearby North Somerset where he could dump the body in the snow. When they asked him why he didn't report the incident to the police, he gave the same answer that everybody else seems to give. He panicked. Not wanting to be charged with murder, even if it was accidental, he decided the best thing to do was to try to get rid of the evidence. Of course, it should go without saying that the court found this version of the story to be a difficult one to believe as there were just far too many inconsistencies. For one, if the accused had been trying to keep Joanna quiet, then why did he feel the need to put his hands around her neck? On top of that, if she was indeed suffocating as he was doing so, surely she would have tried to free herself or at least given some sign that she was in trouble. And even if we ignore that, the very suggestion that she had invited him back to her flat, presumably with the intentions of some sexual encounter taking place, seemed wildly out of character with the person Joanna's friends knew her to be. After all, even if she had expressed her feelings of loneliness over not having her partner there that weekend, there was no indication that this meant she was planning to find another man to cheat on him with. With all of this painting a picture which seemed to imply the defendant was lying, the Crown Prosecution Service would formally reject his plea of manslaughter and instead set a date for further hearings to begin on September 20th, where it would be determined how the trial would play out. And part of what was hoped to be determined was exactly what evidence would be admissible once the trial got started. That in itself would lead to a debate between the two sides as the defense clearly didn't want anything they deemed to be too incriminating to their client's character included. Obviously. As the prosecuting barrister, Nigel Lickley, argued at the time, however, all of the defendant's activities when it came to his past history with prostitutes should be included. And the reason for this was that, in his opinion, it created a clearer picture of the man overall, with it possibly even shedding some light onto his need to hold and squeeze a woman for long and hard enough to kill her. 
That said, for as convincing an argument this may have been to some, in the end, the presiding judge would decide it was not relevant to the specific crime Vincent was being accused of, and neither was his history of viewing extreme pornography online for that matter, as, the way the judge saw it, while it did better paint a picture of the man, it didn't add anything to the question as to whether or not the crime had been premeditated. By this point, nobody was disputing the fact that the defendant had killed Joanna Yates. The only question was, had he done it intentionally? With this being the thing everyone wanted to know, and with all the parameters finally set, the trial began on October 4, 2011. Vincent maintained that he was innocent of premeditated murder, with him pleading guilty only to manslaughter at this point. It fell on the prosecution to prove that this was not the case and that, despite what he claimed, the accused had indeed murdered his victim in a fit of rage. How did they plan to do this? Well, by focusing on some pretty damning evidence, the most prominent of which were internet searches he had made during the days leading up to the crime, which included topics such as length of time it would take for a body to decompose and the dates of garbage collection in the local Clifton area. The prosecutor argued that this was enough evidence to prove that Vincent had been planning the murder for at least a few days. And on top of that, the fact that he tried to implicate Christopher Jeffries in the crime prior to coming clean himself suggested that he was not a trustworthy or honorable character and so his word could not be taken with any degree of confidence. But this wasn't the only piece of evidence which came to light which shed serious dark clouds over the defendant's character. During this period, it would emerge that pornographic images of children had also been found on Vincent's computer and that, due to the extreme nature of these, they would be added to his list of crimes. With things looking worse and worse for the defendant, all he could do was sit back and listen as the prosecution painted the jury a picture of a sexually frustrated man. Someone who, despite seeming to have found love, was still searching for something else to quench his desires. That had led him to notice his neighbor, one he quickly became infatuated with. After all, she was young, attractive, intelligent, and shared many of his same interests. Sure, he may not have known her personally, but their perceived kinship would see an obsession blossom as from here his plans to be with her would slowly take shape. The problem was, Vincent was not the kind of man who had the confidence to approach a woman and express his feelings for her in a direct way, and he certainly didn't want to risk drawing the ire of his own girlfriend or of Joanna's boyfriend either if he did that. So he bided his time and, once he saw her coming home drunk one night, he saw his opportunity to finally make a pass at her while she was at her most vulnerable. It could be argued that all of this was little more than conjecture and there was no solid evidence which could prove things had played out this way. In fact, the prosecution themselves would admit that, unless Vincent was willing to speak on the subject directly himself. There was no way of being sure why he made that initial attack on his neighbor. It did fit in with what authorities knew of him by that point, and regardless of how it got to the stage of two people being alone inside of Joanna's home, what happened next was not up for debate. Once they got inside the flat, the evidence clearly pointed towards the fact that, after only a few minutes of being there, the accused had grown frustrated by his inability to get Joanna to engage with him in a romantic manner, so he used his heightened build to overpower her by pinning her to the floor by the wrists. With him being around a foot taller than his victim, the prosecution argued that Vincent would have no difficulty in getting the better of her physically, 
and once he had her on the ground, the 43 separate injuries across her head, neck, torso, and arms pointed towards the fact that a struggle had indeed occurred as he used sufficient force to strangle her to death. Of course, this would have been a very slow and painful death for the young woman in question, something she would have felt every moment of with a great degree of fear and distress. And the brutality of how this had occurred, combined with the fact she seemed to have struggled to free herself throughout it, painted a very clear picture of murder in the eyes of the prosecution. The defense stood by Vincent's previous story that, while drunk, Joanna had invited him in with the presumed intention of sex and that, from there, things had gone wrong, though not in a way that the accused had intended. As he had stated before, at this point he had put his hands on her to try to calm her down and, in the process, had inadvertently killed her. And as to how the cuts and bruises had gotten on her body, he claimed he couldn't remember. In fact, he would claim there was a lot about that night he couldn't remember, something his defense put down to the trauma of the event. With both sides of the story now being out there, he was left to the jury to deliberate and come up with a verdict as to who was telling the truth. On October 28, 2011, the decision was handed down to the judge as Vincent Tabak was found guilty of the murder of Joanna Yates by a 2-1 to -one verdict. Following that, the judge gave Vincent a life sentence with parole after 20 years. While such a decision may have offered some closure for the family and friends of the deceased, it wouldn't be the end of the story for Vincent quite yet because, with the child pornography charges still dangling over him, he also had that to contend with. And he wouldn't be the only one who couldn't close the book on the whole incident yet because, elsewhere, Christopher Jeffries would still be feeling the effects of his wrongful accusation. By this point, he was describing the way he'd been treated by police at the time of his arrest as positively Kafka-esque, with them constantly keeping him in the dark as to what was going on, something he believed was an attempt to try to break him down and get him to confess to the crime he hadn't committed. On top of that, the fact that his name had been made public to the media prior to any formal charges ever being filed against him didn't sit right with the landlord. And this was what led him to becoming something of an advocate going forward for privacy rights to be granted to people in his situation. So far with this would he go, in fact, he'd at one point given evidence to the Levison Inquiry, a well-known parliamentary probe set up in the UK around this time which sought to look into the ethics and behavior of the British media when it came to what they were reporting. But that wasn't all he was doing, because, after much campaigning on his part and his filing of lawsuits against several newspapers over the way they'd characterized him, he was able to get UK broadcaster ITV temporarily banned from attending any future press conferences related to his case or the case of the Joanna Yates murder on account of the way they had handled the situation prior. How had they characterized him at the time of his arrest? Well, aside from describing him in pretty unflattering terms physically, terms which were supposed to heighten his apparent strangeness and make him seem more dangerous than he was. There was also a perceived undercurrent of homophobia to the whole thing. That was because, as a gay man, Christopher's sexuality would be played up in the news, something which he felt was done as an attempt to encourage the old bigoted idea that all homosexuals were sexual deviants. It wasn't like there weren't accusations of hypocrisy put against him at this time either, Despite later receiving a substantial payout from various tabloids as a result of his legal case, Christopher would choose to cash in on the whole thing even more when he okayed an ITV drama being made about his story in 2013. 
Greg Reardon started a charity in Joanna's memory which was designed to raise funds on behalf of families of other missing people. On top of that, he, along with the rest of Joanna's family, would memorialize her by planting a garden at the Sir Harold Hillier Gardens in Romsey where she had once worked as a student. In the end, while she was taken from the world far too young, at least Joanna Yates continues to live on through her passion in life, landscape architecture. When it came to the man who killed her, his situation would only get worse as, despite already serving a minimum 20-year sentence at this point, in March of 2015, he would also finally be convicted of possessing more than 100 indecent images of children. As a result, an extra 10 months were added to his sentence, with him continuing to serve that sentence to this day. Of course, being a relatively young man at the time of his arrest, there's every likelihood he'll live to see the day where he can finally apply for parole in 2032. By that point, he'll only be 54 years old, so there exists the possibility he could have a whole second chapter to his life. Whether or not he'll be welcomed by the public is another matter, though, as even more than a decade on, the murder of Joanna Yates still lives on in the memory of the people of Bristol, as does the disdain they hold for her killer. The likelihood is that, if he's released at any time, he'll have to move elsewhere, parole conditions pending as he's not going to be welcomed by many people there. It may be a tragic tale, and one which was made all the worse by the time of year it occurred, but as terrible as it was, at least some good was able to come out of it in the end. Good in the form of not only the work which would be created in Joanna's name post-mortem, but also the way it influenced how the media would be allowed to report on things going forward. It's just a shame that none of this will ever bring her back, and that it's her loved ones who are going to have to live with that reality for the rest of their days. We can only hope, then, that, at the very least, they're able to enjoy the holiday season again, as that's something no one deserves to have taken from them by a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.